Our episodes contain graphic information that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Would you like some murder with your coffee? Welcome to Morning Murders. I'm Nicole. I'm Amanda. And I'm Brenna. We're just some gals that like drinking coffee and talking about true crime. And today, ladies, I want to talk about John List. Do you know who John List is? Ooh, I do. Can I say? Can I say? Can I give my version? Okay, wait. Wasn't he... Uh, wasn't he the guy that killed his family? He did kill his family. Did he get away with it? Oh, that sounds I so mean, familiar. Who hasn't killed their family? Am I right, guys? <laughs> <laughs> who hasn't killed their family? But no, this let's true. let's learn. Teach me, teach me. All right. Well, um. Guys, I just want you to know that it's always good to know your neighbors because you never know when your neighbors are going to come in handy So, or when maybe you should be aware of them. So that's how I especially feel when it comes to John List. Hmm. So have you ever heard of the Breeze Knoll Mansion or as today it's called the Watcher House? Okay, so this is where John List's family used to live. So it's in New Jersey. And let's talk about the List family. Especially the father, which is John List, the subject in which we are speaking of. So he was born on September 17th, 1925, and he was the only child of a very strict uh, German parents. His mother, Alma, was very overbearing and overprotective. She was demeaning, He and he grew up as a devout member of the Lutheran Church. He taught Sunday school there, and he later served in the army during World War II. He was given an ROTC commission as an army lieutenant. Uh, He then went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, earning a bachelor's in business administration and a master's in accounting. Uh, He was also described as cold and aloof by people he went to school with or people that quote unquote friends. Um, He had very few friends, in fact, and he lacked social skills, um, which caused a lot of problems throughout his life, including losing jobs, which is important to remember. So. He lived in Westfield, New Jersey, which is where he married Helen. Uh, They had a very rich lifestyle. Um, She had a taste for the finer things in life. She was a bit of a drinker. And she unfortunately suffered from a mental illness that was brought on by syphilis. So lots going on. She was also very demeaning, just like his mom. And they lived in this huge house. So this is literally a mansion, the Breeze Knoll Mansion. Um, They had many, many nice things in the house. He was an accountant, very successful, so they had a lot of money. The children uh, went to a really good school. Uh, Everything seemed like they were living the good life. However, the family was actually majorly suffering from financial loss. John had actually lost his job as an accountant, and with all the overwhelming pressure of the need to be the man of the house, he lied about losing his job for quite a long time. Yikes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, literally, he would just go and sit somewhere and read the newspaper and pretend he was at work. Oh, my God. Just, yep, yep. He would just go, like, oh, bye, everybody. Going to work now. And, like, just sit at, like, 
some bench or somewhere and he would just pretend like he's at work because he didn't want to tell them what was going on. So slowly, the family financial situation just got worse and worse and worse. And then one day, he decided to make this plan and put this plan into motion. He'd been working on it for quite a long time because the detail and lengths that he went through from not getting arrested <laughs> to like like what he did, it took 17 years for the police to figure out what was going on. So get your coffees ready, friends, because... Here come the murders. <laughs> Do you like that? <laughs> it okay. sounds like a band I don't want to go to the concert. <laughs> Here come the murders. Here come the murders. So on the morning of November 9th, 1971, which was a Tuesday, fun fact for you, uh, everyone started out the day like normal. The children went off to school. John was getting ready for work. Helen went into the kitchen. She sat down. She was drinking some coffee. She was reading the newspaper. Alma was up in her apartment on the third floor inside this huge, ginormous house, which, okay, so just a little bit more about the house because I mentioned it earlier. So it was known as, it's now known as the Watcher House. It's a 19-room post-Victorian mansion that was called Breeze Knoll when John, the John List family lived in there. Um, it was one, uh, it was in one of the most exclusive areas in Westfield. Uh, Breeze Knoll was mysteriously burned down, however, in 1972, and there was a new house built in its space. But it's still considered haunted by the murders that I'm about to tell you about because, the, like, the energy is still there. So it still kind of goes by. Um, it's like one of those places you go to like, is there haunting here? So anyways, <laughs> after the children left for school and Helen was in the kitchen alone, John came into the kitchen, took out his nine millimeter Steyr, is that how you Steyr? 1912 semi-automatic handgun and shot her in the back of the head. Oh, yep. Just uh, no good morning, honey. No, nothing. Just psh, goodbye. Uh, then he took her body into the ballroom, because they had a ballroom, and he placed it on a sleeping bag. He then made his way up to his mother's area of the house. He even had a small little chit-chat with her. Uh, he even gave her a kiss, and then shot her at close range in her left eye. <laughs> yep. And uh, her body was too heavy, which he states in a letter he wrote, which I will talk about later, um, and he left her in the apartment space because he couldn't carry her. The plan next was to kill the children as they came home. So Patricia ended up feeling ill that day. Um, so she actually called him to come pick her up. Um, Patricia, this is fun guy, she was an aspiring actress and she was very involved in theater, which John had always thought, um, immoral. <laughs> he did not like that she wanted to be an actress. <laughs> I thought that was all right. amusing. All right. Sorry, right, guys. That's, all right, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> Her being an actress, that's the issue here. Yeah, so yeah. Not you planning to kill your children. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so she was very close to her theater teacher, and she even at one point had said to them that uh, if she were ever to go missing, it was because her father killed her. It's kind of really eerie to think about. So John picked her up from school, and as they walked into the house and started to settle in, he pulled out his antique Colt 22 caliber revolver and shot her in the back of the head. He then took her body into the ballroom and placed her on a sleeping bag near Helen. Next, Frederick came home from school. John greeted him, and then a moment later shot him in the back of the head. Then he placed his body next to Patricia in the ballroom. 
So John Jr., however, he had a soccer game that day. So John made himself a sandwich. Then he went and watched John Jr. play. And then as soon as they got home from the game, John attempted to shoot his eldest son. Now, John Jr. put up a fight, though. He tried desperately to fight his father off. By the end, guys, John had shot him at least 10 times before the end. The last one being in the back of the head, just like all the other kids and his wife. Um, Later on, though, after John got caught and he was interviewing someone, he told the police that uh, he shot John Jr. He started to twitch like he was having a seizure. So he shot him again. (gasps) Father of the year, this one. So then... He took his eldest son's body into the ballroom with the others. He said a prayer over the bodies to save their souls and sent them to heaven for their sins uh, before cleaning up and leaving. Guys, he did the dishes. He cleaned up blood. He, like, uh, cut his face out of all the pictures. He turned up the air conditioning. He turned all the lights on. And then he put on some classic music. Like you do. Like you do. (laughs) So he'd also sent notes to the children's schools and the part-time jobs um, that he kind of had. And he was saying they were all going to visit family in North Carolina. He stopped the newspaper, stopped the mail, stopped the milk deliveries. So sorry, milkman. Can't come (laughs) come by right now. Uh, He bought a flight and took his car to the airport. And there's no actual record that he ended up getting on this flight, but they found the car there. But none of this was even discovered for a month. The bodies were discovered for a whole month. The neighbors, good old neighbors. See, this is why you should know your neighbors. They started to notice strange things like the lights in the house. The light bulbs started going out in different areas of the house randomly. It was like the lights, because the, they've been on all the time. So the wattage was like going out. So the lights just kept going out around the house. And that just seemed really weird. And then Patricia's theater teacher was also starting to get really worried because she hadn't been back to school yet. So after a wellness check, the police walked in and heard what they described as funeral music. So they walk in hearing this funeral music, <laughs> and they discover the bodies on blood-soaked sleeping bags in the ballroom. Like, how creepy. It's just so... This ma- beautiful mansion. It, like, That's definitely music. a scene out of a movie. What? Right? <laughs> it always makes me think of like, the Haunted Mansion ride. Like, just walking in. Uh. Ghosts everywhere. <laughs> Ah, but so since uh, John List had turned on the air conditioning, it delayed the process of the bodies decomposing. So it was really difficult to determine how long the bodies had actually been there and how far of a head start that John John List got. So they discovered this five-page letter that he had written addressed to his. And I found the letter. Um, let me see. Where did I put it? Oh, here it is. Um, I'll just read a little bit of it. Uh, So he wrote to his pastor and he was like, I'm sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done is wrong for all that have all that I have been taught and that any reason that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that will not while not condoning this will at least possibly understand why I felt I had to do this. (laughs) Right. I wasn't. Earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe gone on welfare. But this brings me to my next point. 
knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare was just more than I thought they could and should endure. I know they, they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that. With Pat being so determined to get into acting, I was so also fearful as to what that might do to her continuing to be a Christian. I'm sure it wouldn't have helped. Also, with Helen not going to church, I knew that this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come to church soon, but when I mentioned to her that Mr. Jay, I don't know how to say this name, so I'm not going to try, wanted to pay her an elder call, elder's call, she just blew up and said she wanted her name taken off the church rolls. Again, this could only have adverse results for the children's continued attendance. So that sums it up. If any of... If any one of these has been the condition, we might have pulled through, but this was just too much. At least I am certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone, who knows if that would have been the case. Of course, mother got involved because doing what I did, my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles that this world would have hit her. Ah, so it kind of just goes on like that, but I do like, uh, there's this part at the end, because it just goes, because it's five pages long, it's so long, but at the very end, he goes, remember me in your prayers, I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it, I'm only concerned with making my peace with God, and of this I am assured because of Christ dying, even for me, P.S., mother's in the hallway in the attic, third floor, she was too heavy to move, <laughs> John. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's great. That's great. So it's five pages just kind of going on about how, like, he did this. So the reason why he killed his family is because he was afraid of their sins and he didn't want them to go to hell. So if he kills them now and does a prayer over them, they're going to go to heaven, is how I guess he thought it was going to work. Cool. So uh, tap, tap, tap that reason for later because okay. that. Uh, that is a is one of the four types of family murderers. He kind of falls under two mm. of them that I know about. So, tap okay. tap that for later because that's tap that. Ugh. Okay, sorry. Keep going. I just, just as soon lovely. as you read his reasoning, I was like, that sounds so <laughs> stupid and familiar. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> All right. So it continues, but we're getting to the some of the good parts. Mm. So he wasn't arrested until June first, nineteen eighty nine. Seventeen years later. He had been going by the name Robert Peter Clark, or Bob, and had been living a he had been living a totally new life, yet as an accountant. So totally new life, but as an accountant. Uh, and he was in Denver, Colorado, and Richmond, Virginia. He'd remarried, and the name he was using he'd created based on a former classmate he had in college. <laughs> but this dude never really knew him. Oh my god! Hashtag stalker. <laughs> Ah, uh, so the coolest part is how he got caught. America's Most Wanted. Did you guys ever watch that? Do you watch that show? America's Most Wanted? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So the police were at a standstill. Nothing was working. None of their leads were going anywhere. And year after year, they kept coming up empty. It was really frustrating, stressful, and obviously heartbreaking. And, and every anniversary of the murder, they would do a story kind of hoping that someone would come forward and, and share something they were missing. But nobody ever did. 
Then one of the officers were watching America's Most Wanted, and it clicked. So they contacted America's Most Wanted, and John Walsh, the host of the show, recommended an artist, Frank Bender, to do a forensic sculpting or a sculpture. The police agreed, and everyone just kind of got to work, like full engines running. So Frank Bender worked with a forensic psychologist, Richard Walter, and they dove into the life of John List. They researched how his scars might age. There's specifically, there was one that John had behind his right ear. They looked up photos of his parents, trying to determine how genetically he might age. They even figured out what kind of glasses he might be wearing now, like kind of based on where he was at, his failures in the past, like his need to hide, but also look intelligent. These are the things they thought about as they were creating this this new image of him. So once they got it all together, Frank sculpted what John List would look like. They did the episode and showed the bust at the end and asked if anyone had any information to reach out. Well, in Denver, a family absolutely recognized him. Wanda Flanders and her daughter, Eva Mitchell, were former neighbors of his. They were like, that's Bob. We know Bob. He even married Wanda's friend, Dolores. (gasps) Uh, He told them that his first wife had died of cancer. And if he meant he was the cancer, then that is true. (laughs) Because he murdered her. So after he was arrested in June 1989, it took until April 12, 1990 for him to finally be convicted of his crimes. He was convicted of five accounts of first-degree murder. Now, I tried to kind of figure out what that means in New Jersey because a life sentence varies from state to state. So sometimes it's like between 15 and 25 years. Mm -hmm. So what I kind of found as far as a life sentence in reference to a murder being committed is 35 years. And I could be totally wrong because I'm not. That's not my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. That's what I kind of found. So on May 1st, 1990, he was sentenced to five life terms in prison. He never once expressed any remorse for the murders. He 100% believed he did the right thing to save their souls and that he would also be going to heaven. He believed that up until he died. He died in prison of pneumonia complications at age of 82 on March 21st, 2008. 18 years um, he'd been in jail for. So, but he was in jail for five life terms. So according to what I looked up, he didn't even serve one life term. Because if it was 35 years for one, if I did that correctly, he didn't even serve one year technically or one life term because he died before any of that. Um, He is referred as the boogeyman of Westfield and his body wasn't claimed right away he died and like no one came to claim him <laughs> right ew uh, no thank uh, you uh, yeah. sucks nope. to suck put him in a sleeping yep. bag put him in the ballroom turn that air up let's play some funeral music can we make a john list clue game is that it's always in the always in the ballroom always in the ballroom or in the hallway upstairs yeah with a revolver with a revolver so he now he's buried uh he's buried next to his mom in michigan now well Well, all right yeah so i just want to talk about like reiterate the victim so it was his wife helen his mom alma and his children patricia was 16 john jr was 15 and frederick was 13 yeah damn you get to get buried next to your victim Ooh. like and and any i feel like 
she was always that person to it when he was a kid and growing up who like constantly demeaned him, told him he wasn't good enough and all this stuff as he was a kid growing up. He kills her and he still can't get away from her. She's like, I told you, you're worthless. <laughs> that is, that's. I'm going to lay here for eternity. Tell you how worthless you are. You are worthless. Oh, oh my God. Man. Could you imagine that you like die and your ghost is you as an old lady? Like, oh. like, can't you? I don't know. We'll, we'll I thought, talk about I thought this. The whole rule in movies was like, whatever age you die at, that's that's the ghost that you are. But right? why can't it be like the version you want? <laughs> it can because that's ghosts true. aren't real. <laughs> well, that, yeah, no, because you're also right. Because sometimes it'll be like the, the sad, crippled lady that dies in her in her bed, and then like her, you see her come out of her body as like the young, beautiful self from her past. Yes. Ghosts are totally real, Brenna. Ghosts are totally real, Brenna. Fine. Get out of here. (laughs) We are all made up of energy, and energy doesn't die, and therefore we can have ghosts. Well, mm, okay. (laughs) All right. Well, this isn't a is it crime podcast. This is true crime. Right, right. Let's talk about the facts. Let's talk about the facts. Facts are ghosts. I'm kidding. Um, But uh, uh, speaking of um, crazy, worthless people, I'm kidding. We should never say anybody's crazy. But going along the lines of these neighbors, when I was doing the research for John List, I also read about Timothy Evans, who was another, like, good-to-know-your-neighbors case. Do you guys know who Timothy Evans is? The name is, the name, okay, is in my mind because it sounds like it was something that was reported on a bunch, but I have no idea. So this is in England. Okay. There's some stuff in England. So, uh... I wrote this whole thing. So the flat 10 and 11 of Rollington Place. How well can you really get to know your neighbors, though? There's always that lingering thought of what goes on behind closed doors. And that is very true in the case of these two gentlemen, Timothy Evans and John Christie. First, let's talk about Timothy Evans. So Timothy Evans was born in 1924 in Wales. Uh, He was sickly and suffered from mental illness. He never learned to read or write or anything um, other than his name. His father left his family when he was very young, and his mother had to cope with the challenge of raising three children. He had a very difficult childhood, which led him to excessive drinking and violent outbursts as an adult. He ended up moving to London in 1939 and married... um, Ooh, I should have figured out how to say her name correctly. Burrell? B-E-R-Y-L. Beryl? Beryl? Like Cheryl? Like Queen? Maybe it is like Cheryl. Like Queen Beryl from from Sailor Moon? (laughs) We'll go with that one. Yes. Beryl. In 1947. She was five years younger than him and was about the same in a mental state like he was in. She was also very uneducated, um, and the marriage was very difficult. Uh, They ended up having a baby named Geraldine, and it put a very, very hefty strain on the relationship. Beryl became pregnant with a second child, and because of their relationship and their financial situation, she decided to seek an abortion, which was illegal at the time. Everything kind of got more complicated after that. On November 30th, 1949, Timothy went to the police station and told the constable on duty that he had, quote, put his wife's body down a drain. The initial investigation turned up with nothing. Nobody could find any evidence. There was no body. There was no evidence of a murder. Nothing. So Timothy then changed his story. He now stated that a man on the ground floor of their building had tried to abort her fetus and she died. This man was John Christie. Hmm. 
Now, when the police asked John Christie about this uh, allegation, uh, he denied everything. The police left and thought Timothy was unhinged. Time went by and Beryl and Geraldine were in fact missing. They seemed to just have completely vanished, so the police went back and continued the investigation. This time, the police investigated areas outside the surrounding building, and they discovered the decomposing bodies of Beryl and Geraldine. They were hidden in a small wash house, and they had been strangled. Damn. Ooh. And strangulation like, is such a personal thing. I know. Also, why didn't they do this the first time? Why did they not search so thoroughly the first time they were there? Yo. Anyways. <laughs> It, it, it gets worse, these, these police officers, no. these constables. Uh, being the only suspect and uh, precisely stating that he'd actually killed his wife, Timothy was charged with the murders. He gave two statements to the police confessing the crimes. But these confessions had been written by the police and later came out that they were not even, that none of them was written by Tim- Timothy. He didn't write anything. Oh, oh right, because he couldn't read or write. He could not read or write (gasps) anything but his name. So the police wrote them, read them to Timothy, and then he signed them. Yep. So he was brought to trial on January 11th, 1950. And his attorney centered around the fact that Timothy withdrew his confessions because he later came back and was like, oh, no, I didn't do it. It It was John Christie. He aborted the fetus and killed them. Um, So the attorney kind of played on that and told uh, the police that John Christie had done it. Timothy had only agreed to sign the confessions because he feared the police were going to beat him. That was the extent of how much the attorney really did, though. All he did was like, ah, but he said he didn't do it. And that was it. So Timothy did not receive proper representation. Reporters covering the trial even said it was shoddy and that it appeared the lawyer thought he was guilty and put no effort in. And then, fun things. During the trial, John Christie showed up as a witness for the prosecution he gave a super compelling testimony against Timothy. The jury then took 40 minutes to deliberate. They found Timothy Evans guilty of murder for his wife and child. He was sentenced to death by hanging. Mm-hmm. He spent his remaining time in prison maintaining his innocence, and he tried to appeal on February 20th, but it failed. The trial judge, Mr. Justice Lewis, performed the execution himself on March 9th, 1950. Oh, Whoa, it you happened. Just... It... Oh, Okay. Yeah, you mm-hmm. could just do that. You could just be the judge, jury, executioner. Yep. All right. Yes, yeah. so. I am the law. Wait, and is I this the, the same year? Did he appeal on February twentieth, nineteen fifty, and then yep, just less than a month later? Yep. Damn. Uh, yep. But guys, the story doesn't end there. Oh no. But wait, of course there's not. There's <laughs> more. Let's talk about its neighbor, John Christie. So John Christie was born April eighth. 1899. Hey, that's my birthday. Oh, and I, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I'm here to say that April 8th babies are a little crazy. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just you wait. Okay, after he was accused of the murder, even though he wasn't considered a suspect by the police, his life took a turn after Timothy's execution. He lost his job, his wife Ethel disappeared in 1950, and John Christie told his friends that she had gone to live with relatives because they'd been fighting a lot. Christie sold what was left of their belongings, and by March 20th, 1953, he moved out due to financial hardships. Shortly after John Christie moved, a uh, Mr. Brown moved in. He was putting up a shelf when he discovered a hollow wall. This is strange. As he investigated the hollow wall more, shining a little light inside, he discovered what looked like 
a body of a naked woman. No. The police soon after discovered five additional bodies. No. One of the bodies was his wife, Ethel. John Christie's wife. She was found under the floorboards in the front room. The police had not taken Timothy Evans' case seriously. They thought he was unhinged and did not do a proper investigation because if they would have, they would have discovered more of these victims buried around the property. They were completely missed in the early searches. Oh my God. Oh. So Christy read Telltale Heart and was like, nah, not a deal breaker. <laughs> yes. Not a deal breaker. That's fine. That's fine. It's fine. That's, I like this pounding of a heart. He's like, yeah, that's that's fine. Fine. whatever. That's, I can't, you, he like effectively insulated his entire property with bodies. How did it not smell? I don't know. Right? Maybe don't... they just kind of thought it did. Like, because of everything around. I don't know. You think well, Gacy got the idea from him? Yeah. yeah I, oh, right? Oh, maybe. Floorboards. That's oh, genius. That's genius. Let's do that. Floorboards. A little bit of corpsey smell. <laughs> I'll just spray some potpourri. That's yeah. My, this is just my fancy corpse candle I got from the antique yeah. ball. I don't corpse. know what you're talking about. <laughs> The antique ball. He's like, so he's like, no, I just have cats. I don't remember really like cleaning the litter box. <laughs> oh, no. Hey, my house does not smell like that. I, I don't think it cats. does. I just, I, I qualified it by saying he doesn't clean his litter box. God, you always got to clean the litter box. You got to, or All else it time. smells like It's corpses. actually just his litter box. He uses a human-sized litter box. Yes. <laughs> Ew. Gross. I just imagine the digging. Here's like, you just hear like. <laughs> <laughs> he is a oh human litter box. Yeah. It's a human litter box. Speaking of that, no. So let's rewind a little bit. I want to talk some more. So on the morning of December 14th, 1952, John Christie had murdered his wife. He altered a letter that he had that she had written on the 10th to the 15th. So he changed the date. And then he did that to help cover his tracks. On the 16th, he pawned off her wedding ring. A week later, her watch and wedding band. And he kept writing letters to Ethel's sister until early July. Oh. January. Not July. January. <laughs> claiming that uh she her arm was hurting and she couldn't write because of something going on with her hand uh at that point on the 8th of january 1953 he'd sold the furniture and by february he'd forged his wife's signature to empty out her bank account and stopped answering letters from her family between mid-january early march 1953 john christie murdered three more women he invited them back to his building, where he killed them and hid their bodies. A nationwide manhunt ensued on March 25th, and then three days after that, Christie had called the news of the world and arranged a meeting with a reporter offering an exclusive interview. He said he would allow himself to be turned into the police in exchange. Oh, thank you. So nice of you. No, <laughs> yeah, but the meeting never happened. He freaked out. <laughs> He freaked out when the police showed up while he was waiting for the meeting. He was like, nope, bye. <laughs> he ended up wandering around London, sleeping anywhere he could, until they finally caught him on March 31st. He was approached and asked about his identity, and he tried to lie about it. Oh, my God. But he had, like, this hat on, and once he moved, removed the hat when the cop asked him to, they were like, wait a minute, I know you. You're John Christie. <laughs> You're the guy. You're the guy. His, you're the guy. You're the guy we're looking for. On his person, he had an ID, a rations card, a union card, an ambulance badge, and an old newspaper clipping about Timothy Evans. Woof. Guilty much? Right. And 
On the next day, he was charged, which is April 1st, my birthday. Hey, Hey, birthdays. Uh, So he was charged with the murder of his wife. Later, on April 15th, he was charged with murdering three prostitutes. Can we just say it was April 24th so we can have Brenna have her birthday? My birthday. Yes, right. It was April 24th, so Brenna has her birthday in here now. Excellent. Good, good. I just like to be included. Yeah, I wanted to make sure you were part of this. Thank you. Yes, there we go. Bringing it together. But factually, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) While he was in prison, he confessed to murdering all the women, including Timothy Evans' wife. Yep. He had promised to perform the abortion, but instead he used a gas to knock her out, then strangled her. And this is this is graphic, which he did with everybody. He uh, raped her postmortem. And he told Timothy that she died during the procedure. And then he had hid her body since the abortions were illegal. So they both had to, like, so Christy had convinced Timothy to leave Geraldine with him while Timothy went to go stay with relatives in Wales, I guess, so things calmed down. Like, why would you even, why would you even leave your child with somebody? Ah, So (laughs) there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of. Uh, murders that and like missing women that that happened that they like went to some person to get an abortion for whatever reason and then that they die during it because psychopaths were like cool like yeah perfect you're right here and you're unconscious excellent you know like that happens so often we'll have to do an episode on that at some point because that happened a lot tap (laughs) that tap that for later tap that tap Tap that for later So when Timothy had returned, he asked Christy about Geraldine several times, but Christy refused to let him see her. But Christy never actually admits to killing the baby. But I mean, in prison, if you're like a child killer, like even even the baddest of guys are like, who are you? We're going to hurt you, you terrible person. Yikes. So I'm not surprised he didn't actually admit to the murder of a baby. Um. So his trial started on June 22nd, 1953, in the same court that Timothy Evans was in. Hmm. He was only on trial for his wife and tried to plead insanity and claim that he had a poor memory of what happened. But after 22 minutes, the jury found him guilty of murdering his wife. Christie did not try to appeal the charge, and he was sentenced to death by hanging. And uh, John Christie was hung on Jan- July 15th, 1953, mm-hmm. three years after Timothy Evans on the same gallows. Noise. Whoa. Yep. Coming full circle. Oh. Yeah. Super guilty. And the ghost of the guy was, was there and he watched it happen. He helped the executioner. Yeah, but was he an old lever. ghost or a young ghost? I have we to know. know. We don't know. <laughs> Uh, So his victims, uh, just to kind of list their names, we have um, Ruth Forrest, who is 21, Muriel, Amalia Eddy, who's 32, Beryl, how do we say it? Beryl? Cheryl. Beryl? Evans, 20, and baby Geraldine, who was 15 months old. Yikes. Ethel Christie, his wife, who was 54, Kathleen uh, Maloney, who's 26, Rita Nelson, 24, and Hectorina McLennan, who's 26. Damn. And he, yeah, he was known as the Rollington Place Strangler from 1943 to 1953. Ten, yeah, 10 year span of his murders. 
Woof. Won't, won't you be so guys, my neighbor? Be your neighbor. Na- know your neighbors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's important. Is that yes. your final sip? But my final sip oh, yeah. is definitely know your neighbors or at least be aware of them because you really never know if they're going to be like, let's help out or let's cause murder. <laughs> See, I I would do the opposite. My final sip is don't have neighbors. <laughs> but that's because I am lucky don't enough have. to live in such a way where I don't have neighbors because people are terrible. My my final sip will definitely be uh, see something, say something. Mm. With with a a second sentence, don't don't get caught by the bystander effect. Do something about it. See something, say something. The bystander effect. Uh, I've heard a little bit about that. Can you talk about a little? So it's like when I I could do real quick because I know we just did our our little final sips, but I'll I'll sneak in a little something like sneak in and just yeah yeah. The bystander effect is uh it's a social psychological theory that um individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim when there are other people present. So it's like when you drive by a car accident and you're like, oh, someone's probably already called the cops, like, or someone's already called the ambulance. Like, don't don't just assume. Like, see something, say something. So that's my final sip. See something, say something. You could save a life. Just saying. I like that. That's great. I like it. Yes. Ah, thank you, ladies. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into Morning Murders. Mm. Ah. Uh, so fun. I'm gonna. Ugh, God, I need another cup of coffee after all this. So mm. I'm gonna go get a refill. <laughs> Me too. I think I'll join you. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Have a murder you like to talk about over coffee? We would love to hear about it. Email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Morning Murders. In today's show notes, you can find our cited research as well as a few of our favorite mental health resources.